0: Once Latin America's wealthiest country, the conflict has plunged Venezuela into deep economic turmoil. And the
1: government's management of the economy has been disastrous. The conditions in Venezuela are heartbreaking.
2: Power struggle between President Nicolas Maduro and the opposition leader Juan Guaido just keeps going Single on. Single largest
0: economic collapse outside of war in at least 45 years.
3: This is Voices of Venezuela, a new miniseries produced at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in collaboration with the Dracopoulos Ideas Lab. I'm your host, Moises Rendon, and the director of the Future of Venezuela Initiative at CSIS. I was born and raised in Venezuela. I left the country in 2012 to pursue better opportunities and a safer life in the United States. In each episode, we will dive into one of the many aspects of the crisis in Venezuela, We will hear from Venezuelans about what's happening on the ground and weave in analysis from experts at CSIS and beyond. We will cover a wide range of issues from water infrastructure to the lack of medicine to illegal mining. We will highlight what the US and international community can do to help the Voices of Venezuela. Welcome to Voices of Venezuela. I'm Moises Rendon. Last week, I talked to Ambassador William Brownfield about violence, crime and insecurity, which are major issues for Venezuelans. It's important to emphasize that not all of this violence is random or circumstantial. In many cases, the regime uses violence in a calculated and systematic way to repress and neutralize political opponents. Since 2014, over 15,000 people were detained for political motive oftentimes after they participate in a protest or posted on social media. This week, we'll be discussing how the Maduro regime imprisons political opponents in an effort to quash dissent. To unpack this issue, we're joined by Tamara Tarasiuk Bronner. Tamara is the Acting Deputy Director of the Americas Division at Human Rights Watch. She has been covering human rights in Venezuela for a decade and previously held positions at the Wilson Center and at the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. Thank you so much for joining us, Tamara.
2: Thanks for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here.
3: For this episode, we're featuring testimony from two Venezuelans who have been prosecuted by the regime. The first is Rafaela Requesens. She's a prominent activist who helped organize a student protest movement in 2017. In 2018, she was arrested alongside her brother, National Assembly member Juan Requesens by the Bolivarian intelligence service, known by its Spanish acronym, SEBIN. Rafaela was released shortly after, but her brother Juan is still being held at Elicoide, an infamous prison operated by the SEBIN, where high profile political prisoners are tortured and held without due process. Here's how Rafaela recalls the day she was released.
0: I think one of the hardest moments in all of this was when I had to say goodbye to him inside the Sebin Elicoide prison. He had his hands tied behind him with a zip tie. And I left there crying, knowing well that I was leaving and that he was staying in this place, of which everyone has heard the stories of torture that happened there.
3: Juan has been falsely accused by the regime of plotting a 2018 drone attack against Nicolás Maduro. His preliminary hearing, which was supposed to be held within 45 days of the arrest, was delayed for 14 months. Juan Ricasens is an elected official, and this is a high-profile case. How has the international community responded to this, Tamara.
2: Well, unfortunately, his case is not an isolated example. It's, I would say, a clear example of the regime's crackdown on dissent. We've documented so many cases of arbitrary arrests, cases that are plagued with irregularities, including postponing hearings, planting evidence against detainees, people held in horrible conditions, tortured. And the response from the international community, I would say, has shifted. Some years ago, it was very hard to convince the world that things were so bad in Venezuela. And that has changed. And I would say that those who still defend the regime today are very few. Some do so for ideological or geopolitical reasons. Others because they're tied economically to the regime. But no one who's decent and has set a foot on Venezuela and seen the reality there defends Maduro anymore.
3: We also have testimony from Jose Arrocha, right? Another political prisoner, he's a retired Lithuanian colonel in the Venezuelan army. He was outspoken and critical of the government and was forced to resign in 2009. Five years later, during a wave of social unrest in 2014, Jose was falsely accused of treason and imprisoned without trial. He was held five stories below ground in La Tumba, the tomb, a detention center at Sevinja headquarters in Caracas, he recalls seeing himself in a mirror for the first time after he escaped.
1: At the time I'm talking to you, many Venezuelan political prisoners are suffering. Indeed, those who are at the tomb cannot even look at their faces. I could see mine just when I left the tomb. I couldn't recognize myself. I had lost 60 pounds, and I was totally emaciated.
3: Now, one of the most salient points that both Rafael and Jose made was that this form of political persecution is not new in Venezuela. The Chavez government also imprisoned political opponents without due process, subjecting prisoners to torture and intimidation tactics. Rafaela said this has become clear to her throughout Juan's imprisonment.
0: In the end, I think all of this, not just for me, but for all of us, opened our eyes to the fact that this has been happening for a long time. And we need to take advantage of what's happening to Juan to elevate our voices, not just in his name, but in the name of all the political prisoners who today remain captive behind a cell just like him and who also have been political prisoners.
3: Now, Tamara, can you walk us through a brief history of political repression and imprisonment in Venezuela? When did the Chavez government start imprisoning political opponents, and how has the phenomenon evolved over time?
2: Well, this actually has a very long history in Venezuela. It started a long time ago when there was an attempted coup against Chavez, and that gave the Chavez government the perfect excuse to start going against political opponents. And I would say that a very important point here was the political takeover of the Supreme Court back in 2004. At that point, the Chavez government and its allies in the National Assembly increased the number of Supreme Court justices. They took over the court with political supporters and allies. And since then, The situation in the judiciary deteriorated so badly that today there's no independent institution left to act as a check on executive power. And it is this absolute lack of judicial independence and concentration of power that has allowed the Chavez and then Maduro regimes to commit all sorts of abuses without any checks on their powers. Initially, the repression was more targeted, I would say. You know, they would detain one specific person to send a very powerful message to a whole group, like when they detained Judge Maria Lourdes Afuni many years ago for ruling yes. against the government. But then, you know, this started evolving into detaining political opponents and critics and opponents more broadly in massive protests, in crackdowns against people who were taken to the streets. We've documented cases of family members of military officials that are critical of the government and are being detained and tortured cases of critics, independent media outlets, journalists, and today we even reach the extreme of people who are being prosecuted because they circulate information on social media and even through WhatsApp, which is a private means of communication.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Now, I want to get a sense of the current landscape of political persecution in Venezuela. As I mentioned, both Jose and the Reconcedent siblings were detained by civilian agents but in addition to Sabine, there are widespread reports of detainment, torture, and extrajudicial killings by other agencies, right? For example, there are reports that the Special Actions Forces of the Bolivarian National Police, known as FAES, of F-A-E-S often carry out extrajudicial killings in poor neighborhoods. The DSEAM, on the other hand, cautious dissent within the armed forces. What are the differences between all of these agencies and how important these distinctions are?
2: Well, this can be certainly confusing, but one thing is clear, and I would say that it's that all of them have been involved in human rights abuses. We have documented abuses committed in crackdowns on the streets when people took massively to the streets in 2014 and 2017. And in both instances, what we saw was Systematic abuses by security forces. This included the national guard, the Bolivarian National Police, local police forces, and we say they are systematic precisely because we were able to document that different security forces committed the same types of abuses during a period of several weeks or months, and including in controlled environments. And you know, the other aspect to this is it's not only a crackdown on the streets, but as you were saying. We are seeing first an increasing role of security agents implicated in abuses in recent years. This includes abuses, serious torture against detainees inside intelligence headquarters, including against members of the military and their families. And also the abuses on the street that are not linked to the protest, but rather to this brutal and abusive policing by the special security forces of the Bolivarian National Police Fires that you were talking about.
3: Now, a recent Human Rights Watch report stated that the state security forces have killed 18,000 people since 2016 in instances of resistance to authority, in quotes. This is a shocking number. Do we have any idea how many of these killings were extrajudicial?
2: These are shocking numbers indeed, but more so because these are official numbers. Uh, These are the numbers of people that authorities recognize have been killed by security forces. I don't think it's possible to know how many are extrajudicial killings. But what I can tell you is when you start digging into cases and you get the testimony of witnesses or family members, they will tell you that they last saw victims in police custody, that they were sometimes openly killed in these raids that are carried out in low-income communities to ensure public security. You know, some of these killings do have a political implications. There were raids and killings in certain areas after people protested in favor of Huang Guaido, for example, the opposition leader. But a lot of these raids are part of a disastrous get-tough-on-crime strategy that started many, many years ago with police and military raids under the umbrella of an operation that was called the operation to liberate the people. And in the context of that operation, a lot of human rights abuses were committed. And this continues today with fires which is the special police force that is currently terrorizing particularly low-income communities in Venezuela. And the truth is that all of these raids have done very, very little to
3: improve security. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, let's Talk a little bit about the tactics that they use and how to compare this in the region. I know you have been following this, but in Venezuela, political prisoners are systematically tortured. They're suffocated, waterboarded, severely beaten, electrocuted, hung by their limbs, deprived of food and water, and subject to sexual violence. But the torture is not just physical, it's psychological. José gave an impactful account of what it was like to be in a tumba where fluorescent lights are kept on 24-7 to disorient prisoners.
1: I was in solitary confinement for six months, in a tiny cell with very bright lights for 24 hours, without windows, without sun, without hope. Many guards brutally tortured me for hours always telling me that I have been abandoned. I was nothing and nobody cares about me. I was able to escape and I always thank God for my new opportunity of being alive and being free again. Political prisoners think as I did before, they are nothing and nobody cares about them.
3: Family members are also affected psychologically. Here's Rafaela again talking about how she has had the chance to celebrate Christmas with her brother.
0: We've had some Christmas lunches where they try to make it seem as if things are normal. And when you're there, sitting at a table, eating with the person that is in prison there, in this case, my brother, you realize that it's all a lie. Yes, you enjoy those few minutes being with him. But then you remember the reality that you're in the elicoide prison
1: and that we're under a regime that is willing to
0: murder, that is willing to do whatever is necessary to stay in power. And so you leave there with a knot in your throat, knowing that he's staying and that you don't know when you'll see him again or what will happen to him.
3: Tamara, again, you have spent 15 years studying and investigating human rights violations, not just in Venezuela, but throughout Latin America. Can you put all of this in comparative perspective? How does the Maduro regime justify these detentions? And how does this compare to other contexts?
2: It's very difficult to rank and compare human rights violators. Maduro accuses critics and opponents, typically. And, you know, the government has done this repeatedly over the years. They're accused of destabilizing the government, of being traitors, of conspiring to overthrow Maduro. And they do this without providing any evidence and with a justice system that responds to the regime. And that's been the rule for many, many years. And precisely because they control the courts and they control security forces, they're able to get away with anything, including the type of torture that you were describing. What I can tell you in terms of the torture tactics specifically is that some of these brutal tactics, when torturing detainees, are at times similar and they ring about those that the bloodiest dictatorships in South America used in the 70s and 80s, right? You we were talking about sexual abuse, brutal beatings, waterboarding, deprivation more generally. And we've also seen cases of short term disappearances where the detainees are taken away and authorities then deny their whereabouts or to family members and to lawyers. You know, granted, they haven't thrown people off airplanes like the military regime did in Argentina, but sometimes the disappearances last for days or weeks, and the agony for the families is enormous. The other shocking parallel, I would say, is the use of military courts to prosecute civilians. That is a practice yes. that we hadn't seen. In Latin America, since the dictatorships in the 70s and 80s, and in Venezuela, there have been more than 800 civilians prosecuted by military courts in these cases. And a final point I would make is that what does make Venezuela unique in addition to this is the combination of this brutal crackdown on dissent, a humanitarian emergency that is affecting the everyday lives of Venezuelans. And the massive exodus of millions of people fleeing this crisis in Venezuela. That combination, we have nowhere else.
3: Yeah, I cannot imagine how devastating this is for so many Venezuelan families. Jose Arrocha escaped prison in 2015. He's now a Mason Fellow at Harvard University Kennedy School of Government. His research focuses Import on creating systems to track the actions of individual security officials, judges, and prosecutors who subvert local laws in order to prosecute political dissidents. Jose is lucky to be free and alive, but an estimated 790 political prisoners, including Juan Requesens, are still being held illegally by the Maduro regime. Rafaela has used her brother's story to elevate the plight of Venezuelan political prisoners.
1: The number of political prisoners is growing.
0: They liberate a lot of them, but they keep kidnapping a lot of people. For the simple act of raising their voices, for the simple act of going against the regime, for the simple act of informing, of speaking clearly, for the simple act of fighting.
3: I want to talk about what can be done to stop these human rights violations, Tamara, and what is the role of the international community here. Multiple countries have referred Venezuela to the Prosecutor General of the International Criminal Court, or ICC, asking for investigations into crimes against humanity. The Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights and the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights have been investigating and monitoring the situation, though the Maduro regime has reportedly blocked some of these missions, from entering Venezuela. Can you talk about these efforts and what, if anything, has been achieved so far to help political prisoners in Venezuela?
2: The international pressure is key here and it's the only way to get the regime to respond. Maduro and his cronies have proven that they have no genuine interest at all in respecting human rights, obviously, but they do feel the pressure when they feel that they will be held accountable abroad. And I would say that there are three key strategies for this. One mm-hmm. is targeted sanctions against key people implicated in human rights abuses, in corruption. These are not the humanitarian sanctions or sanctions on the oil sector or the financial sector that can have an impact on the humanitarian situation. These are sanctions against specific people where they cancel their visas, they freeze their assets, and they feel the pressure because many of them and their families are not in Venezuela today. The other strategy is, you were talking about the role of the ICC. There is currently a preliminary examination open looking into possible crimes against humanity. And that is an avenue for very concrete accountability abroad. And the third is the recent creation by the Human Rights Council in Geneva of a fact-finding mission. This is an independent group of experts that are looking into specific cases of abuses and chain of command responsibility that can feed into the ICC investigation. The Venezuelan regime needs to know that the world is watching. It's not just about pressure to release a handful of political prisoners, because that is obviously very valuable for these people who get released. But if you look at the whole picture, we're talking about a revolving door here. Some get released, others get detained. So what is critical with all these strategies is to show and to send a clear message to those in power that they will not be able to get away with this whole structure of repression with absolute impunity.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I understand most of these crimes committed in Venezuela are not prescribed. They don't aspire, right? So you can always prosecute them. I mean, we, we hope justice arrive in Venezuela sooner rather than later, obviously. But my understanding that, again, these crimes are have a non-prescription principle. Is, is that accurate, Tamara?
2: It, it depends on the action and the crime and on laws applicable internally in Venezuela. The key thing here, I think, is, you know, we all need to be conscious that in Venezuela, there is no way that justice will come for the victims in the current context. So all these international strategies send the message that we are building the criminal file against them, and eventually it will be used.
3: Now, as we get into transitional justice and the day after, I want to play one last clip from Rafaela.
0: It's, it's not normal that an innocent person is behind bars, the when the real delinquents, the real murderers, murderers, murderers the ones who are really culpable for what's, culpable what's happening in the country, are free, and they keep committing the same crimes.
3: This clip was particularly impactful because she's right. Despite the fact that the Maduro regime systematically violates human rights, Venezuela recently gained a seat on the UN Human Rights Council. How is this possible? Possible, and how this affect the efforts to improve the human rights situation in the country? And once there is a democratic transition, what will the day after government need to do Terms of transactional justice to ensure that these prisoners find justice?
2: Of course, Rafaela is right. None of this is normal. As I was, you know, we were talking about earlier, those in power have to know that they will eventually be held accountable. And if it's not in Venezuela, it will be abroad. It's sometimes hard to give hope to victims and their families because, unfortunately, these processes can be very long. But it's a process and a journey that we have to do. And that's why the work of documenting human rights abuses and building this criminal file about those responsible is so important. Sometimes in the short term, we lose some battles, like the Human Rights Council seat. It's completely shameful that they won, and it's part of international politics and due to Venezuela's still powerful voice at the United Nations. However, I should say that this was a very, very narrow victory, and that Venezuela's power internationally is declining sharply. And it's harder and harder for them to keep these victories. I would say that in terms of, you know, you were talking about democratic transition and what needs to be done to ensure justice, I think the most important step here will be in the medium to long term to overhaul the justice system. Today, the justice system in Venezuela is a political tool of a regime that not only doesn't investigate crimes, let alone human rights violations, it is used entirely or with the main purpose of prosecuting opponents. So without independent judges and without independent prosecutors that respect due process, it will be impossible to have justice for victims. But overhauling the justice system may take time. And in the meantime, what is key is to try to rebuild the paper trail of these abuses. In the current context, which is very hard, human rights lawyers and groups have been doing that. But I would say that preserving evidence, in particular evidence that points to responsibility at the highest levels, should be a priority in this transition.
3: Yes, yes. Tamari, it was great having you. Thank you so much for all that you do and for highlighting all your insights in this episode. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. Voices of Venezuela is produced in collaboration with the Tracopulos Ideas Lab at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Special thanks to Jumi Araki, Julia Kim, Bree Silly, who contributed to the production of this podcast, and to Maria Despradel, Claudia Fernandez, and Linnea Sanding for providing research support. Thank you for listening today. We will be here next week with a new episode of Voices of Venezuela.